This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I pulled back as if I was going to punch him in the face. But as soon as I got my fist back, I was like, shit, the camera's on me. I have to like follow through. Nelly wouldn't like she doesn't pull punches. God, I hope he knows to duck this right now. <laughs> Just like swung for his face. And thank God he like pulled back and 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 sold the hit perfectly. After that, everyone was like, holy shit, did you just punch him in the face? I was like, no. And that actually uh, got put in the movie. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Awardist, where we are chatting with the actors, creators, and more who are contenders this year and breaking down the state of the 2023 Oscars race, which is oh so close and right around the corner. I'm Entertainment Weekly Executive Editor, and uh, we have... Uh, yet another great show for you guys this week. Uh, first up, let me tell you who our guests are a little later. We have Margot Robbie, who stars in Damien Chazelle's 1920s early Hollywood set epic, the um, critically polarizing Babylon. And uh, then we also have Brian Tyree Henry, who stars opposite Jennifer Lawrence in the, I'll call it the the quiet and the subtle Apple TV Plus drama Causeway. And joining me to talk about all of that, those two guests, and so many more topics is EW Executive Editor Clarissa Cruz and EW Awards Correspondent Dave Carger. Hello to you both. How are you? Hey, Jared. Hey, guys. Great to see you both. Hi. Likewise. Um, uh, is everyone's holiday shopping done? No. <laughs> <laughs> for myself, maybe, but not for anybody else. Exactly. I hear you. I'm pretty much done. Oh, good. Wow. Oh. <laughs> good for you, Dave. Dang it, Dave. You're going to make us look bad. All right. It's <laughs> fine. It's fine. I get it. No, I keep like trying to give my mom and sis on still buying me stuff. And I like go to look for things and I'm like, I'll just buy that for myself. <laughs> um, but I hope she doesn't hear me saying that because she'll be really mad. Anyway. Um, let's get, uh, let's get to the show, shall we? Um, I do want to start with Golden Globe nominations. We, we broke those down a little bit last week, but, um, we've kind of had now, uh, several days a week, um, to, to reflect on that. Um, here's the thing that I noticed. We did not see on the day of nominations, this normal, like barrage of reactions and statements that are typical with a big award show nominations. Um, so Dave, what are you hearing from folks in the industry about whether nominated talent will even go to the show, um, in January? happening on a Tuesday, by the way. <laughs> yes, yeah, not so much the Sunday night marquee slot no. that the Golden Globes used to have. <laughs> no. What I'm hearing from publicists, both personal publicists and also studio publicists, is that the general feeling is that the Hollywood Foreign Press actually has made strides. They have doubled their membership. They've added a lot of diverse diversity with their new membership. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, you can quibble definitely with some of the nominations, the fact that none of the mm -hmm. 10 Best Picture nominees at the Golden Globes were directed by women, where mm -hmm. three of the top 10 films on the AFI top 10 list yeah. were directed by women. So there's that. But I do get the sense that overall people are feeling like they can't punish them forever. And that I do expect 
more than half, two thirds or so of the nominees to actually show up. Now, will the ultra A-list people show up? Will Julia Roberts and Brad Pitt show up? Not so sure. But I think some of the kind of more up and coming people, this is their chance to be seen, to help their campaign, to spread the word about their films or their TV shows. So I do think you're going to see a lot of the nominees at the Golden Globes, if not the really big ones, and certainly not Brendan Fraser. Yes, not not Brendan Fraser at all. Cannot blame him for uh, not showing up. Um, do you think anyone will go so far as to, in their acceptance speech, uh, you know, talk about the elephant in the room? I mean, I think it's always a possibility. But the sense, you know, you, you alluded to this earlier, Jared, how it's been sort of muted, the response. Mm. I think there's still very much a wait and see kind of attitude <laughs> to see who's who's going to be the first one to to re- to really um, embrace it and and go back. And it just it, it at this point, you know, things can change between now and January 10th. But at this point, it does seem a bit quiet. And um, but yeah. you know, with the host uh, Jared Carmichael and also Eddie Murphy being honored, like I think there are plenty of um, people who can be vocal about that very thing. Yeah, you mentioned Eddie Murphy. I was going to say it's a tale of two Murphys. Eddie Murphy getting the Cecil B. DeMille Award and Ryan Murphy getting the Carol Burnett Award, which kind of had me scratching my head a little bit because I don't think of Ryan Murphy as necessarily a funny guy or his shows as, uh, you know, exemplifying comedy. But um, I don't know. Is there anything either of you make of that one specifically? I mean, he's a big name. Yes. He, you know, he's kind of. Has several Golden Globes to his credit. Yeah. And as far as creators go, he's one of the kind of household names out there. And yeah, it does seem like a strange fit with the Carol Burnett name of the award. Yeah. Um, But the whole, but I'm, I'm more interested in the Gerard Carmichael hosting gig because I was shocked to learn that there has not been a black Golden Globes host in 30 years. Oh, oh! I well, I didn't know there ever has been one. So at least there has been one. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, I think it was Louis Gossett Jr. If I'm getting uh, that it correct. Sense. Okay. So come on, guys. Like, mm. but I think yeah. that the the hiring of Gerard Carmichael kind of indicates to the Hollywood community that they're making the effort, and that I think there are going to be a handful of nominees who might have been on the fence about whether they were going to come, and that news might help out. One thing we haven't mentioned though, that a friend of mine who's a publicist mentioned to me and I was like, oh, I didn't think about this. Above and beyond the nominees who may or may not come to the Golden Globes, who are they going to get to present Mm. the awards? And will a lot of the big stars who five years ago would have said, of course, I'll present an award at the Golden Mm -hmm. Globes, even though I'm not nominated myself this year, are they going to get anyone to actually show up who's not up for an award? That's going to be- Or who's not talent from an NBC show. Right. Who's <laughs> kind of being strong armed exactly. into like, hey, we need you there. Right. Um, I think it would, would be great if they just used like Saturday Night Live talent throughout the entire show. <laughs> and like they presented all the awards and they had some fun. And I don't know if they'd do it, but I don't know. It's just they might have to. They might have. <laughs> Honestly, yes. That's true. Yeah, you, you want to keep that job? First. We need you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, well, okay. Golden Globes aside, uh, over the past two weeks or so, um, 
in addition to the Globes, we've had the National Board of Review, we've had AFI, uh, New York Film Critics Circle, LA Film Critics Association, uh, the Critics' Choice Awards, um, those uh, nominations or, or best of lists have all been announced. Um, looking at the big picture of these lists, um, what have been the big surprises, if any, for either of you? I think one thing that these lists in aggregate form, and I think it's important to stress to everybody listening that there's basically no overlap between the Oscar voters and the voting bodies of any of these groups. I think there's one person who's a member of the HFPA who also votes for the Oscars, but that's it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, actually, that's not true. Leonard Malton is now a member of the Academy. Ah, so, there and, you go. Okay. and he's Critics' Choice. So that's it. So there's mm-hmm. like two. So you can't really read all the tea leaves from this, but it really does help to kind of sharpen the, the focus of the race when you look at all of these groups, not so much New York and LA, but for me, National Board Review, AFI, Golden Globes, and Critics' Choice, those four top tens, if you will, uh, help help show us where things are headed. And I think what it did was, it, it, for me, it took two films that I was more bullish on uh, out of the running, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and Empire of Light, which were basically blanked um, in all of these as far as Best Picture is concerned. And it really helped um, elevate Top Gun Maverick in my mind to the point where now I would say that Top Gun Maverick is the one movie, even more so than everything, everywhere, all at once, that I think has a chance to actually vie for a Best Picture win at the Oscars along with the favorites. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's a big statement, Dave. Okay. I, I actually agree with you, Dave. Going uh, for the win. Yeah, all right. I, I agree with you just because, and I've said, said this on, on previous podcasts, it's the movie that most people have seen. Um, that most people have liked um, across generations. Um, and, and you know, you can't discount, you know, that some of the older members of the Academy, like whole families came to see this movie multiple times. So um, so I think there is a lot of goodwill there. Mm. Okay, so we do have a late entry in the race, though, that we need to talk about, a movie that just opened, uh, had an enormous weekend. People have been waiting for this movie for well over a decade. Uh, the Avatar sequel, where do we think that is going to factor in? Can it uh, kind of overtake that that sentiment of something like Top Gun? I personally don't feel like it can. I feel like it's a total lock for Best Picture and probably even in an old pre-10 nominees year, if there had only been five, I think it would get in there as well. Mm. But I feel like if the first Avatar couldn't win Best Picture, then the second one won't because it didn't do anything that was that different. Top Gun, on the other hand, feels like a it feels like a newer movie, even though it's mm-hmm. a sequel also. It feels more kind of more noteworthy than Mm -hmm. the Avatar sequel. But the Avatar sequel is going to do quite well, I think, at the Oscars. I just don't see it winning. I I agree with you there. Um, I think definitely in some of the technical and craft categories, um, it'll it'll get a bunch. Um, But I do actually, I enjoyed it more than the first one. Um, in a way, because it had a little bit more of that, the plot with the family and, you know, all, all of that. I felt like it was a little bit more emotionally, um, satisfying than the first Avatar and of course, technically beautiful. So, um, so I, I, I agree with you. I don't think it's going to win, but I do, I do think it's going to get one of the 10. Mm, okay. So then as we look at, uh, and Dave, you've, you've touched on this a little bit. You're seeing like Empire of Light is now kind of kind of bumping down and even Black Panther, uh, Wakanda Forever. But to the point of Black Panther, what are you feeling now about Angela Bassett? 
You know, I was a little resistant to the idea of her as an Oscar nominee um, up until pretty recently. I, I felt like the Academy Actors Branch was going to be resistant to a superhero movie person in any acting category. Um, right now, in the ranked list that I just handed into my editor, Clarissa Cruz, <laughs> uh, I think I have her number five. I, I do have her getting a nomination right now, but I... I don't, there's, there's no way she's going to win, not up against someone like Jamie Lee Curtis or Carrie Condon. But, and I'm still not willing to say that she's a definite nominee. I think there's a lot uh, of things that could shift in that category if everything everywhere all at once takes off even more than Stephanie Shu could get in there along with Jamie Lee Curtis or, you know, Dolly DeLeon for Triangle of Sadness. It's, or if Women Talking has a resurgence, then Claire Foy could get up there along mm -hmm. with someone like Jesse Buckley. But definitely Angela Bassett is someone who has really uh, done well in these early lists. Yeah, what uh, Golden Globes as well as uh, Critics' Choice, which uh, you, are, are you on the nominating committee there? Is that accurate? Yeah, so I, we should say full disclosure, I am a voting <laughs> member of the Critics' Choice Association. I vote on the movie categories. I do not vote on the TV categories. Got it. Well, uh, so so she she got got some love at both of those. I, that's one I'm really curious to see where where she's going to go. But I think uh, to your point, don't see her winning. But um, at this point, I feel like I could see her getting nominated. We'll see what SAG does, too. Yeah. And I feel like that. And SAG is, is probably more of an indicator than some of these other ones. Right, Dave? Yes, because there is actual overlap between the more overlap between the SAG voting body and the Academy voting body. Yeah. All right. So uh, all of that aside, this coming week, uh, the Academy, uh, they're going to reveal some of their short lists. Um, I, I do believe that includes uh, best song, documentary, animated, a couple other categories. Uh, are there any lists in particular that the two of you are uh, anxiously awaiting to see who makes the short list cut? <laughs> Sorry, I can't see you guys. Um, oh. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say song um, just mm -hmm. because there are so many high wattage potential performers. Um, you know, there's a the potential with Taylor Swift, uh, Lady Gaga, Rihanna. And so just having any of those ladies at the show, I think would be really cool. Um, the uh, Another category that I just personally am always interested in is the the hairstyling and makeup. Mm -hmm. um, and so th that always is, is fun, fun for me to see what's going to happen with that category. Yeah. And I'm going to pay attention to the documentary shortlist just because that is a, that's always a kooky branch that, you know, just completely shuts out something that you think is a sure thing nominee or a documentary that does very well in the zeitgeist and they don't even put it on their shortlist. So, and there's so many docs that are eligible that it's, it's hard to keep track of them all until that 15 shortlist comes out. And that helps me focus predictions as well. Same with um, international feature. Yeah. yeah, I was just about yeah. to say that. I mean, that's always an interesting category. And I think last year I I was more interested in the international um, nominees than I was in, in the best picture ones. And and in this case, uh, in this year, I think there's a, another strong slate uh, to choose from. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, um, speaking of some strong contenders, uh, you know, we uh, as I teased, we have a couple uh, really great interviews uh, coming up. Um, but here's what I want to ask both of you about them first. Uh, Margot Robbie for Babylon. Brian Tyree Henry for Causeway. What do each of you think they have going for them with their performances? Well, with Margot, who's a Best Actress contender for Babylon, she really is the center of the movie. We, we kind of experience the journey of the film through her character, who is this very ambitious, kind of a hot mess, 
she puts the hot in hot mess, <laughs> but she, but she's, her character is this like complete roller coaster of emotions. And you see or the rise and fall of, um, an early Hollywood star. So what she has going for her is that all the different things that she gets to show, she gets to show a little bit of the naivete, but also the ambition. She's doing drugs. She's partying. She's kissing this person, kissing that person. She's wrestling a rattlesnake, whatever she's doing. There's t- it's a very showy performance. Um, right now I have her ranked number seven. Um, and I think in a weaker year for actresses, she would have been a, a nominee like, full stop. But with mm. Kate Blanchett, Michelle Yeoh, Michelle Williams, Viola Davis, Daniel Deadweiler, and Olivia Coleman, it is just rough this year for lead actresses. So unfortunately, there's going to be a lot of people or several people who will not make the cut, even though they delivered strong performances. I think it just remains to be seen how Babylon does when it comes out um, and more, more people see it. But as you mentioned, Jared, at the top, it's fairly polarizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, well, I, the the yeah, the reviews are all over the place for that one. Um, Clarissa, what 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 are your thoughts on Brian and Causeway? Oh, I love Brian's performance in that movie. Mm-hmm. I thought it was so subtle. I thought it was um, he he presented it in a way that I hadn't seen him in the past, and I feel like that that whole movie hinges on this relationship between him and Jennifer Lawrence and how they sort of find each other. Um, I, I loved it. I, it ab- absolutely um, impressed me when I saw it. I just wonder if it's a little bit too quiet of a movie, um, you know. And I and you know, in a, he he's up against Ki Hui Kwan from um, from Everything Everywhere All at Once, who I think is the front runner at this point. Um, and and it is a very strong category this year with um, with Brendan Gleeson and, and some other folks. And so I'm not I'm not sure he'll make the bracket, but he definitely is deserving. I really enjoyed his performance. Mm. Well, and I think everyone's going to enjoy uh, that interview with him. Uh, That's coming up a little later. First up, Margot Robbie. She is next. Uh, But we do have to take a quick break first, so don't go anywhere. The Awardist will be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Awardist. All right, you've already heard us uh, tease uh, the interview a bit, so I say let's get right to it. Here is Dave's interview with Babylon star Margot Robbie. Hello, Margot. Great to see you. Good to see you, Dave. Thank you. Uh, I'm curious to know what your history was, if any, with Damien Chazelle. Was there a movie of his that you saw, Whiplash, La La Land, First Man, that you saw and thought, this is a guy I want to work with? Uh, yeah, all of them. But yeah, Whiplash was the first thing that I saw and was just so astounded by the filmmaking. And again, anytime you hear about a filmmaker that seems so accomplished in their style and approach and vision, and then you find out how young they are, you're like, what? It's like knowing how young PTA was when he made Boogie Nights. You're just like, oh, well, this is just going to be one of the greats of our generation. So I definitely felt that when I watched Whiplash for the first time. And then he just 
blew our minds again with La La Land and the filmmaking in First Man. I mean, it's just like time and time again, I feel like he just crushes it. And Babylon is for sure, I think, like his biggest swing in a, in a lot of ways. And and I think he, yeah, I think he nails it. Yeah. And since we're talking about classic film, I think Orson Welles was in his early 20s when he made Citizen yep. Kane. It's possible. Yep. So I'd be curious to know what your initial conversations were with Damien Chazelle. Did he just want you to read the script and not have much of a talk? Did you guys have a conversation where he kind of told you about Nellie and, and your character and the movie itself? What was your introduction to this film? I read the script and it wasn't an offer to me. Um, the, the role became available uh, because there was a lot of things like shifting and changing timeline wise with the movie and COVID. So suddenly the role became available and I didn't know if I was in the mix or if he was, you know, I, I, it was, <laughs> I read it and I was like, I need to speak to him immediately. I was so, so obsessed with the idea of being a part of this and with Nelly. And I think that energy must have translated, fortunately for me, in a very Nelly manner because I was borderline manic in that conversation. There was I was just so excited and passionate and desperate to be a part of this that I probably convinced him that I was right for Nelly just with the sheer energy that I was throwing at him. Um, and then and then it was like, you know, I think it was a weekend then. So I didn't hear for a couple of days. And by that point, I started absolutely spiraling and think, you know, I remember calling my team like 10 times a day and being like, have we heard? What do I do? What do I do to get this role? Like, should I just go to his house and convince him again? And they were like, no, just wait. Um, and then, yeah, fortunately, later when I've spoken to him, he's like, oh, of course, no, to me, you were perfect for Nelly. And I was like, well, I didn't know for a couple of days there, I was really scared I wasn't going to get it. And uh, yeah, it was after that, it was really our, our conversations Obviously, we spoke about Nelly a lot, but our conversations and our attention was immediately turned on who would be Manny. Um, he was in the midst of doing that search and a pretty rigorous search at that. So we had a lot of conversations about our like that relationship. And then I just started reading with other actors, which for me is a great way to find my character is, is kind of like testing out the way they end up talking and behaving with with other actors. That's so interesting because here you are, you know, you already have two Oscar nominations under your belt. You've starred in so many of these fantastic movies that have done so well. You've produced your own movies. I'm sure on one hand, you have a lot of filmmakers begging you to work with them, but yet there's other other projects where you have to be like, okay, this isn't an offer. I need to put myself out there. It's an interesting balance. Yeah. yeah no, it still happens. I mean, there's, there's filmmakers I want to work with or projects that I hear about where I, you know, I I do put myself out there for it and and I get the feedback of like, well, they're looking at so-and-so or, you know, feel like maybe you're better for this role, you know. So there's still instances where you got to kind of convince someone when you have the gut instinct, uh, which is which is nice. You can't lose the hustle. Yeah, I love that. You know, it's funny. You said that you just use the word manic to describe Nellie and I have mania down in my notes because when you watch <laughs> it, that's the sense that you get. I mean, she's a bit of a hot mess, right? I mean, it's yeah. the beginning. How did you work to capture that mania and, and present it in a way that didn't feel like totally out of control? Yeah. I mean, she's, 
she's she's so many things. I think her energy is something that I wanted definitely to come across on screen, but especially because our first introduction to Nelly is at one of the biggest, craziest parties you're ever going to see, and she needs to be the person that stands out at that party. That's how she gets a job. So I was like, well, and that's that's at the start of the movie, and we need to escalate from there. So that's that's a lot of energy to put on screen, and and what is it? And I think the fact that she gets kind of, you know, noticed straight away for her acting abilities, you know, once she does get to set. I think she's a very instinctual person. I think she understands people and what captivates people and what gets their attention and and kind of I think she has this yeah, in intuition that she knows what's going to work for her. She knows what she has and what she doesn't have and she plays to her strengths. So she's like, yeah, I'm I come from nothing. Um, I'm going to show up wearing nothing and I'm going to get your attention and I'm going to be the shocking person that you think is uncouth, but you also can't take your eyes off. So, uh, you know, she, she knows how to play to her strengths and to find all that. Yeah. I did tons of things, tons of different kind of acting things, but yeah, playing with energy was, uh, you know, it's, it's a kind of abstract thing to talk about, but there are kind of techniques acting techniques to kind of harnessing energy and and making it kind of hopefully convey on screen. Um, yeah, I love, I love, I love working, workshopping, all that kind of stuff. You know, it's so interesting. I don't know if you watch shows like American Idol, like I do obsessively, but you know, sometimes when you watch a show like that and you're introduced to a contestant on the show and they're being interviewed and they're clearly like a lunatic and you're thinking, oh God, when they get into the room and they, and they actually have their audition, this is going to be a nightmare. And then they go into the audition room and they're great. Yeah. That's like Nelly. Just like you said, when she gets on the set of that, she just, she can cry one tear at a specific moment. And, but she actually has proper skill. Was that part of the fun of this character is that she has that dichotomy in a way? Totally, totally. And she is smart. She just wasn't educated. You know, she's, she's, she is so many things, just maybe not in the, the usual way you would think about it, but yeah, she, there's no doubt that she's, she has raw talent. And I think she has like, you know, she's, she's a real survivor. Like she came from nothing and she found a way, blah, blah, blah. Like there's so many reasons why I can explain in, in, you know, to myself that she would be able to read people, read a room, get what she wants, push it further. You know, like she, she has to be an instinctual person. And I think you need to be instinctual to be a great actor. And she is. When you think, I mean, obviously Nelly is super ambitious, right? When you think back to like before you were on Neighbors or something, or maybe when you were just starting out doing that, can you relate to that side of her? When you compare yourself to your peers, either now or then, are you kind of, do you consider yourself more ambitious, less ambitious, the same as other people? Yeah, I think I I, I definitely relate to that 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 hunger, that like, I have to make it happen. I mean, it's something that you obviously hide and and you make it seem like, oh, this all just happened and it was a happy accident because that's nicer for people to hear. No one, it's kind of gross to wear that sheer ambition. So obviously I think, but uh, no, I definitely, I've always had that hunger. I still have that hunger, but I remember that, especially when I was back in Australia, that feeling of like, I just have to get there. How do I get there? How do I get a foot in the door? How do I make it to America? How do I get a plane ticket? How, you know, like it was just, a constant like scratching at getting to the next thing. And you just, I think, I just think you have to want it so bad to be in this industry. I mean, not just for actors. I mean, everyone it's, 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 you just have to want it so bad. You have to love it so, so much and want it so, so bad. I don't know. Sometimes like young, younger people who want to get into it, ask me like, what do I do? And I'm like, okay, here are the practical things, steps you can take to try and get a foot in the door. But at the end of the day, you need to want it more than everyone else.
you know, you have to want it so bad. Yeah. Right. And uh, Nelly definitely has that and it feels, you know, clear on screen, but uh, yeah, I can definitely relate to that. Uh, we, we had a chat yesterday and you kind of dropped this fascinating thing. I'm sure you've talked about this in other interviews, but where you kind of audition 31 different accents for Nelly. Can you like, exp- I mean, are there even 31 different accents? I guess there are, but you, you know them all. What were some of the ones that like almost made it? It was so funny. Well, I, we were trying to find like what her, her sound would be, which is important to the story because once talkies come in, everyone goes like, ah, I hate, I hate how you sound. And then she starts spiraling and knows that she's not going to make it. So it was tricky to not go. The obvious route would be high and nasal, but then you get into the caricature, um, you know, like in singing of the rain, like I can't stand it, which is also weirdly close to Harley Quinn for me. So I was like, I kind of think high and nasal is not going to help. I need to do low and nasal. So then I started looking up people like Fran Drescher and like, you know, also then finding that raspy voice because I don't know, I find like, I watched a lot of like Jersey Shore and they, everyone who parties hard in their twenties and like, they have that husky voice. I had a husky voice when I partied too hard when I was younger. And so it's such a sign of someone who's like living too hard and not taking care of themselves, not sleeping, drinking too much, all those things I wanted people to just understand about Nelly without having to like show it so much. But yeah, so we we started honing in on things like that. And also where she was from was important. Um, so it was like, is she from Brooklyn, the way Clara Bow was? Is she from, you know, just one of the boroughs? So it was looking into like, I mean, when I say 31 accents, like I'm not exaggerating. I could go through my phone voice memos and show you me impersonating Joe Pesci, me doing like, I mean, it's, and then Snooki, uh, you know, people, and then totally, you know, people who aren't known, but dialect coaches have recordings from. I did Boston, Southern. I mean, yeah, every, every, I did ran the whole gamut and I would read them and, and send them to Damien and he would say like, yes, no. Then he'd be like, okay, actually, can you mix Drita from Mob Wives with Snooki from Jersey Shore? Give me a bit of, um, yeah, uh, give me a bit of Fran there. Okay, no, I don't like that. Uh, you know, oh, who else was it? Um, Sylvia Sydney. I was doing a Sylvia Sydney who's got these great interviews where she's like, you know, in her 80s and totally drunk and she's like, it just, it's an amazing sound. So I'd, you know, do, yeah, try all these things, mimic these accents, then meld some of them together, then read Nellie's lines as that. And eventually what we honed in was we want her to be from Jersey, with Damien's from Jersey, actually. We wanted to be from Jersey. We wanted to have a low husky voice, but something that was kind of like grating and just not pleasant to listen to, um, which was which was great. And I to help keep it husky, A, I was pretty exhausted on the shoot, so that happened kind of naturally. But I'd smoke those fake cigarettes that you have on set. I'm not an actual smoker, but that just dries your throat like mad. So I was like chain smoking herbal cigarettes this whole shoot to keep my voice super husky. That sounds awful. Well, I, people should know since you mentioned Sylvia Sydney, people who are more familiar with like more recent movies, she was in Beetlejuice and she's the one kind of the older lady who was throughout Beetlejuice and had the the, the cigarette. Anyway, she's great. Yeah, she's um, brilliant. And she back in the day, like watch her earlier stuff. Oh my God, she was stunning and a brilliant actress. Um, but yeah, now, and then also like watch her in her earlier films and now watch interviews of her. And she is, I mean, she's so funny and uh yeah, that's just great. Um, so you mentioned Clara Bow, and you also told me that Joan Crawford was a bit of an inspiration with some of her acting. When you went back and kind of learned about these performers from almost 100 years ago, in some cases, not Joan Crawford, but um, 
did you start thinking about like, wow, it would have been interesting to actually be a performer back then? Or are you happy that you're doing it now when you're doing it? Yeah, I did think about that a lot. I was like, would I have done better back then than now? I don't, I don't know. Some, I, 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 I am one of those like nostalgic people that just romanticize the past so much. So I definitely feel like a, lo- a big part of me is like, I wish I was around at that time. Um, but not just because the filmmaking seemed so different and wild and, you know, no rules, but I, I really, I love movies. I love movies from the thirties. Actually. I, lo- I just love that time period where it was head to toe acting and, and all the shots is like, it's very head to toe and a close up was, you know, the thing they would take their time to light. So they were very few and far between, but, and then very impactful when they were there. Now it's the opposite. You know, most movies, it's easier to do close-ups and then you're actually like spending more time and money getting the wides and the establishes. So, but I love that head to toe acting. And I, I feel, I don't know, I, I, I'm quite a technical actor, I think. And, um, and I love the choreography and I love acting whole body as opposed to just face. So, so I would have really liked to have been around the twenties and thirties and, you know, um, yeah, I think it would have just maybe suited my strengths. Uh, what do you see as Nellie's kind of overall character arc in this movie? I mean, obviously there's the kind of ascension, there's the rise and fall of her career in a way, but without being spoilery, what were you most interested in kind of exploring as an overall arc for her? Do you know, it all started with, as soon as I read the line in the script, I'm a star. And she's like, I am a star. I just literally took that quite literally and a star burns brightest right before they die. And so I just thought she was just going to be catapulting a million miles through the atmosphere and she was going to be a ball of fire and she was just going to be burning brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter until it was too bright and, you know, self-destructs. That's interesting. Obviously you are a true professional. You're, you're going to show up and do your best every day. But when you're working with someone like Damien Chazelle, who is so young and energetic and has the Oscar and is just at the top of his game, does does it make you want to up your level a little bit? And if so, how do you try to go about even doing that? I, yes. And everything makes me want to up. Like, that's why I love, I care so much about the other actors I work with because I, I love actors who push me and they raise the bar. So I raise the bar and we keep doing this. And I totally found that with Diego in particular, who I got to do so many of my scenes with, like we would just go higher and higher all the time. Um, and, but Damien, he, I mentioned it when we spoke, his pursuit for his vision. I don't want to say pursuit for perfection because he doesn't want things to look perfect on screen, but his version of what, you know, how big is, is like good enough is never enough. For Damien. And that's what I love. That's what I find inspiring with the director. A director who's like, no, we haven't got it yet. Go again. No, I need that. It was almost perfect. The whole two and a half minutes of it was perfect, except those two seconds. So we're going to do it all over again. You know, like I I love that. I love that someone's not going to settle for anything less than the absolute better than they imagined. And and once you give them the best version they start thinking, maybe I could even get better than that. And Damien's so like that. It's like you deliver on everything. And then he's like, that was perfect. But since I got it, maybe we can get something else. (laughs) And you just do more and more. And especially when as a director you believe in, and I feel this way about the directors I work with, like that's why I only work with directors I believe in. I, I, I will do anything they tell me. Like I will do anything, go anywhere, give them absolutely everything that I have. And, and I think it's important to choose the directors that you work with because you don't do that unless you don't you really believe in someone and want to give them every part of you. Well, I mean, if you just look at the people that you've worked with, 
already in your career at Martin Scorsese, Quentin Tarantino, Richard Curtis, David O. Russell, even Adam McKay, right? Um, when you think back to working with Damien, how about his onset demeanor? How would how does he compare to the other people that I've mentioned or other people that you've worked with? He's great. I mean, like a thing that I guess all those people that you listed have in common, that they are the clear leader on set, which is so important, but they also are such collaborators. And I think the best directors really trust their HODs and they look for to collaborate with the people that they hired. Something I noticed about Scorsese on my first American film, Wolf of Wall Street, it was very clear that he hired HODs that he thought were the best. He recognized that they are best at what they do. So I'm not going to tell them, like, you tell me what you think the best idea for this set design or for this wig or for whatever. That's that's what you're good at. So you tell me. Okay. And then he takes it all into account. And like all great directors, everyone has like, you know, I noticed it also with Quentin, you know, there's some, and Damien's the same, like there's some scenes where they're like, this shot has been in my head for eight years. It has to look like this. It's going to start there. It's going to pan there, blah, 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 blah. That's how it has to be. And you can tell that they've just seen that in their head for, for years. And then there's other things where they're like, this could be anything. You can go for it. And that's where you get that really fun kind of area to play. Um, and then that's more in like the the David O realm is is like the play, find it. I don't know. Let's, let's you know, very instinctually like I'm getting tingles over here. So let's follow that. No, now it's bringing me here. So let's follow that. So like there's obviously like a spectrum of, of techniques and some are more, you know, specific and some do kind of like improvise a bit. Damien really does a bit of both and and it's it's amazing. Um yeah, I've I've been so lucky. The the list of people I've worked with is it's all I've ever wanted to do. So it's it's amazing. I love that. And for anyone who was not familiar with the uh phrase you just use HOD, you're talking about heads Sorry, of heads of department. Yeah, yeah. So like the the person in charge of all of makeup, all of hair, all of set design, whatever, they're they're the HODs. Can you tell me whether there was anything uh, that you do in this film as Nelly that was daunting or scary? I mean, there's a lot that you're asked to do, right? That's <laughs> so much. There were um, the, the scenes that stood out to me when I read the script. You know, I can read a script, any script, and be kind of like, I got an inkling of how I would do that scene or like, oh, I know how I deliver that line or some options of that or, oh, this bit I'm not sure that's going to, I'm going to sidebar that and get back to that later. Reading this script, I genuinely, it was the crying on cue it was the rattlesnake fight and it was the hearse party where she vomits on everyone. Those were the three things where I was like, mm, I, I don't know if I can pull this off. And particularly with the rattlesnake and the vomit thing, I was like, I actually don't know how I'd even begin to go about that. <laughs> I'm actually scared to take this role because of those scenes. And um, usually when I'm scared is why I, when I like dive in head first, but those ones were like really scary prospects. Cause I was like, I just don't know how to pull that off and not ruin this movie by doing something, you know, you have to be absurd, but not stupid. It has to still be, it has to be absurd and heightened, but still, real and hit you in some sort of emotional way. So I was, yeah, I was scared of those scenes. There's one sequence where you're all kind of filming one of the first, you know, talking pictures yeah. that going to go down in history. I mean, it is just so much fun and exactly. so obvious. What are your recollections for people who have, who are going to be listening to this or watching this after they see the movie? 
I was so looking forward to that sequence. It's the sequence in the script that like made me laugh the hardest when I read the script. And uh, I was so happy to see that PJ Byrne got cast as the AD, the assistant director that you see in that scene, because we worked together on Wolf of Wall Street. Um, and uh, yeah, and and Carson was playing like the sound guy. He was, that's his first day on set ever. That's his first role. Like, and he crushed it. But there was, that was madness. That whole sequence got so big and so crazy. That was one of the early scenes where, you know, I gave my biggest version on the first take and Damien was like, okay, so we're not even close to being at the level we need to be at. And I was like, I just gave you my biggest version. (laughs) Shit. Um, So by the end of that day, I mean, all hell broke loose. He kept being like, Damien just kept being like, I need more. I need more. And I was like, just like, what more can I give him? I'm screaming. I'm dripping with sweat. I'm like, I, eventually I just started like destroying the set, like picking up things and smashing things. We all got into like this, this fight, you know, where at one point, like all, and, and our, our background extras are also background artists are also like diving in and getting in on the fight. The guy playing the props guy, like I literally accidentally like hit him in the lip, busted his lip. There was one point where I got Carson by the shirt and I like pulled back. It was so in the moment and I could feel that the camera was right there. And I pulled back as if I was going to punch him in the face. But as soon as I got my fist back, I was like, shit, the camera's on me. I have to like follow through. Nelly wouldn't like she doesn't pull punches literally or metaphorically. So I was like, God, I hope he knows to duck this right now. <laughs> Just like swung for his face. And thank God he like pulled back and 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 sold the hit perfectly. You know, like I missed him by a couple inches and he reacted, his reaction made it look like he got hit in the face. But that after that take. <laughs> Everyone was like, holy shit, did you just punch him in the face? I was like, no. Um, but we all watched it back and we're like, my God, it looks it looks perfect. And that actually uh, got put in the movie. But, yeah, there was, I mean, that scene just, the the wheels had truly come off by that point and everyone was just, and, and none of us had a voice by the end of it. None of us, you'll notice also when you watch the movie how raspy PJ's voice is when he's like, all right, we're going. And that's because by the end of that day, none of us could talk Olivia, me, PJ, I mean, like we we had no voices because we'd screamed so much that day. And uh, yeah, the last couple of takes that day were, weren't usable because we all, you couldn't hear what we were saying. <laughs> so it was so funny. And, and, and that scene, that sequence, and this is where I want to give like a particular shout out to Tom Cross, the editor, who like, if you care about editing at all, or even if you just like are interested in the general rhythm of a film sometimes, like that's a masterclass, that scene, the way he kind of like escalates the rhythm and and the kind of like the repetition to add to the final impact is the most incredible, some of the most incredible editing I've seen. I, I love that sequence and it, I think it plays oh, really well. I believe an Oscar winner for editing Whiplash. I mean, he really knows yeah. what he's doing. And you mentioned Olivia. Olivia is Olivia Hamilton, who is Damien Chazelle's wife, who yep. plays the who seemed based on Dorothy Arzner or some uh, like yeah. an old she is phenomenal I love her she's great she's a she's a boss producer you know she's pr- producing this film which by the way is I can't think of a more difficult film to produce um she's married to Damien so that's a different level altogether and she's one of our key characters she plays Ruth who's a director and you know important because back then there were so many female directors before again before so many changes happened before movies really became the commodity that they became instead of being you know money makers and kind of then people came in they're like oh we'll take it from here guys you know and suddenly all the female directors <laughs> disappear but she uh yeah she she's based on 
yeah, the stories of the prominent female directors back then. Uh, when we were chatting yesterday, I was asking you about Brad Pitt and I was really intrigued by something that you said that you found him to be continually inspired on set. And this guy who's been working for decades has reached the heights, has the Oscar, has done everything. But I found it really interesting that you felt that he had this, like, whatever the opposite of jaded is, is yeah. what he is. Did you find that inspiring? Uh, did that have an effect on you to witness that firsthand? Or, I mean, yeah. obviously, you were, but still, I mean, to 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 see that like that. I, I, it did. And it makes me so happy because I've, I mean, he's been doing this a lot longer than I have, but I still walk onto every set and I'm like, it's like Christmas morning every time I'm like, oh my God, look at that. And, oh, we're going to be working with so-and-so and, oh, you know, you know, they, they did the pyrotechnics on Apocalypse Now. This is so cool. You know, like it is so exciting. And I've always said to myself, the day I don't walk onto a set any day and feel like that, then I should stop and let someone else have that role because so many people want to be on a film set and don't get the chance. And nothing upsets me more than walking onto a job and working with people who don't want to be there that bad or aren't excited to be there anymore. I'm like, well, then go do something else. Let someone else have a go. Um, and Brad is just so not that person. He's he's the same, like excited to be there, so appreciative of everyone and what they do and and continually inspired by the newcomers you know like he's and you see that obviously he's got an incredible production company like if you didn't if you weren't interested in the next generation you you can't really have a production company because you've got to be looking for those new voices that you want to support and I think he does that amazingly but um yeah it's there's nothing worse than like I don't know sometimes like someone will be like oh we didn't get this we're going to come back tomorrow and you hear like an actor like grumble about that, be like, oh, I thought I was going to get a day off or something. And I'm like, you're going to, why are you upset about being on a movie set for another day? This is, we're so lucky. This is so good, you know? So I love working with people who still love it and still love being there. And particularly after having done it for decades and having what you would imagine is, you know, seen it all to still be excited to see more. Yeah. Well, may you always have that joy and it exudes it shows in your performances. I congratulate you. You did such a great job in this movie, Margot, and I'm excited for people to, to see it. So thank you so much for taking some time to talk to me today. Thank you. I love talking about this movie. I can't wait for people to see it. Well, look, uh, first of all, a fantastic interview. But the, the thing with Margot, uh, Dave, is that she has been someone who is she really impresses at every turn ever since uh i guess it was wolf of wall street when she kind of burst onto the scene um what, what do you make of that that trajectory of hers her her talents where she's headed because I, I think an oscar is in her i agree future. do you know what it's interesting that she's in this movie babylon with brad pitt because i think you can make some parallels between the two of them when brad pitt mm. first kind of burst onto the scene in thelma and louise it was his looks that everybody was really talking about. Yes, he gave a nice performance, but it was like, oh my God, this guy's so gorgeous and you like this new hot young thing. In many ways, Margot with Wolf of Wall Street and also that cameo in the big short in the bathtub, that yeah. was her kind of explosion, right? Yeah. As, as the new gorgeous female yeah. star. But much in the same way that Brad Pitt has really shown us over the years what he can do as a true actor, I think that's what Margot is showing us. Don't forget, this woman already has two Oscar nominations under her belt for Bombshell mm -hmm. and I, Tanya. And even though I don't think she's probably going to get nominated this year only because of the stiff competition, 
she's already shown us that she's got it in her. And I, I really enjoyed talking to her, this interview that you just played. And she said even something like, I can talk about this movie forever. I love talking about this movie. She's mm. so enthusiastic about this project with working with Damien Chazelle, with the Hollywood history of it all. She was really interested in yeah. kind of talking about you know, the, the classic Hollywood. And my other job besides working with you guys is I work for Turner Classic Movies as a host on that channel. And it was really great to kind of connect with her about Clara Bow and Joan Crawford and all the different people who inspired her performance in Babylon. So that was really cool. I enjoyed talking to her. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm really interested to see where one of her upcoming movies, how quickly that becomes a TCM uh, entry. <laughs> Instant classic. Instant classic, Jared. <laughs> Instant. It's got to be. It's got to be. I mean, I'm joking, but I mean, there are a lot of great people behind that, and, and I'm sure it's going to be uh, a real marvel to be seen. Um, but one last thing before we go to uh, one more break, I want to ask you talking about how you know the competition is so tough this year in that lead actress category. I think, Clarissa, I, I believe we've talked about this here before, but Dave, I'm curious your take. Do you think there should be more than five actor slots at the Oscars? Something that's perhaps more of like a percentage of the number of submissions or, you know, the floating system up to 10. What do you think? No. Mm, leave it at five. I think there should be five in every category. Even best including picture. Including best picture. Yes. I'm a purist. All right. Bring, I, it, ba bring it back to five. Make your job easier, Dave. Yeah, <laughs> I don't disagree with you. All right, that was a simple answer. All right, uh, so we are going to take one more quick break. And when we come back, Brian Tyree Henry, don't go anywhere. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, welcome back to The Awardist. One more interview for you guys, and I hope you enjoy it. It is EW Senior Movies editor Joshua Rothkoff with Causeway star Brian Tyree Henry. Brian Tyree Henry, thank you for joining us. Of course. Let's start with a question about the director of Causeway. Uh, I understand that you've known her for a while, right? Yeah, we go back almost, uh, it's crazy. Uh, 18 years or so, so closer to 20 years at this point. Lila was an undergrad at Yale, and I was um, a first year at Yale School of Drama. And uh, when you're at Yale School of Drama at that time, you are doing possibly three things. You're in rehearsal for something, you're in class for something, and you're doing everything you can to try to sleep to prepare for the next thing, which is class rehearsal. And um, our rehearsals and stuff are pretty much closed, you know, like because it's it's an intensive program. So they're closed off to the public. Like, you know, it's it's all within the school. And Lila somehow found her way. <laughs> Lila, Lila found her way into the plays. She would be there. And, you know, the the tenacity of this person was just very cool to see. So like we would meet and we would talk about plays and we would talk about the state of theater and we would smoke cigarettes and get coffee and sit on the steps of the theater and talk about theater. Um, and uh, I always knew that she was going to do something great. I really did. I always knew that she was going to go off and, and become this amazing comet that she is. 
Um, and so I graduated and I started my uh, career in New York theater. Um, and then she, after her graduation, did the same. And so we would always cross paths. It was always this thing of like, when are we going to work together? Like literally screaming at each other in the streets of New York about when we're going to like collaborate. We were kind of over it. We were like, when the hell is this going to happen? And then whenever it got close to us ha uh, having a chance to work together, then I left. And, <laughs> and then I started doing TV and film. And I just knew that, you know, something about her career was going to grow exponentially. And so then I get this call that she's doing this movie, her first feature. And that's all I needed to hear to sign up. Uh, I, I always wanted to work with Lila. Her brain is one of the most fascinating, most complex and most caring places I've ever had the luxury to walk through. <laughs> it's a journey to go through her masterful creative brain. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, she's truly one of the biggest reasons why I joined Causeway. She has a, a knack for getting incredible performances out of people, both on stage and on screen. And I wonder if there, how would you, does she have a, a technique or a tactic? Does she have a, a style that you could tell us about something that she does? I hope that I'm not like, I don't want her finding me and like taking my kneecaps out about it, but there's this special quality of her that I really care about. And I call it the Lila squat. And what the Lila squat is, is basically, let's say we're in the middle of, uh, you know, our scene, you know, we're doing our thing and, you know, cut is called and you're having a conversation with your scene partner and then you turn and she's like right there, you know, like she's there and she wants to discuss, you know, like it's, it's something that's very rare. It's truly a gift. Uh, and I think the reason that she gets that close is because there's an intimacy to her direction. She it doesn't it's not anything that is on presentation for anybody else, uh, not for the crew, not for any producer that happens to be. It's really intimate. It's between the actor and her. Uh, and what I love about that, it is it's truly a collaborative measure. It's something that you don't really get a chance to see that often. Um, and I, I always say that she's the actor's director um, because. She's right in the in, in the thick of it with you. She wants to make sure that she knows exactly what your process is. What what is the through line? What are we talking about? What are the conversations? What are you feeling? Those things, you know, um, that are really really important, especially when making a film like this with the weight of this film. Uh, and so, you know, that Lila squat comes in handy because then it, you feel like she's in it with you. You feel like she's in the trenches with you. You feel like she's somebody that you can actually talk to. Uh, she doesn't care about the time. Uh, she doesn't care about what the next shot is. And she's not going to move until she feels that you, the creative, have some kind of blood flowing through you that you you can go on to do what is asked of you. So it's really it's really um, uncommon. <laughs> it's not a common thing. It's not a common practice. And I, and I really appreciate her for that. It's amazing. Yeah. I, I, the, the idea of slowing down and being there in the moment and being present. On, on paper, Causeway would seem to be the kind of project that I guess an actor would probably dream about. Two actors together, scene after scene, conversations, um, coming to a kind of understanding that's not closed, um, but still open. Yeah. How rare is it getting a script like that in your experience? And what were your initial feelings when you got it? It is very rare. I, uh, at one point, was worried um, about how I thought viewers wanted to see me. I know that I had made a really good um, uh, name for myself in the world of comedy, in the world of television. And then in film, you know, I was used to kind of serving the story by like ushering the story along, but not really being the focus. Uh, and so when I saw this script with James, there was something 
that really intrigued me. And I think the most intriguing part was his stillness, um, watching this man kind of go and walk through the world with the weight of the world on him. Um, there was a quietness to him, but that to me, what I found and felt was most important is that oftentimes in the quietness and stillness is where the loudness is able to reverberate, you know, it's, it's able to vibrate and really be heard. Um, and I wanted that. I wanted to experience that because, you know, I don't ever want to be pigeonholed. I don't think any actor worth their weight and salt wants that, especially any, any actor of color wants that. Um, and so there was something that was calling out um, from James. It was like a tuning fork when I read him. There was this vibration coming off of him that was echoing throughout the script. And I wanted to see what that was. I mean, I, to be honest with you, when I first saw James, uh, when I first read James, I found myself judging him a little bit, uh, which is something I never I never try to do. But, you know, it, that's how he kind of was um, oozing off the page a little bit. There was a bit of this uh, guilt that was going on with him. Um, him not really being able to deal with his grief uh, and loss was was really part of me was really trying to confront a lot of the things that I was dealing with, with myself, the parts that I was angry with, with myself, when I was dealing and am dealing with uh, when it comes to grief and loss and guilt. Um, but I also had a true sense of care for him. That, that was something that was very important. I really cared about him a lot. I really wanted him to be okay um, in the simplest ways of just, you know, dropping the load just a little bit, being able to walk with his head up just a little bit. Uh, and there was also this kind of kindling of friendship um, that I wanted to explore um, because there's all these different ways to celebrate friends. We know how to do that. We know what that looks like. We know what the jubilation of that looks like. But what happens when there's a friendship being tested by true loss? What happens when there's a friendship that actually is going through um, a, a great emotional weight? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that to me is when friendships are truly tested. And so I wanted to see what that was. And and to and to be honest with you, to be able to explore that with Jennifer was also something that was incredibly exciting to me because I have been a fan of Jennifer Lawrence's, as many people have for quite a long time. She has been doing this since she was 17, even younger. She's a pro. And she started in independent filmmaking. You know what I mean? Like, this is where she started. And so to watch her kind of come back to this, to come back to her roots, as it were, of doing a movie like this with this kind of quietness, this kind of stillness to it, this true character development and, and and dissection and research of what it's like to get to the true essence of what it means to be human um, was beyond exciting to me. Intimidating, <laughs> like incredibly intimidating. Um, but at the same time, I, I felt that there was an opportunity for both of us to to raise each other up, to to test these kind of quarters that we hadn't really explored yet, to really also find a place of safety um, in that exploration. Um, and I feel like that, in essence, is what we got to. Um, the, the final product kind of shows that. So, yeah, James... It's unlike anybody I played, and um, and 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 I ended up leaving with a huge amount of compassion for him, a huge amount of compassion, and there and and there in and of itself, I found compassion for myself too. It's um, it is incredible, as you say, to see Jennifer Lawrence returning to her indie roots, and to see both really mm -hmm. seizing this opportunity to go, um, you know, very personal and intimate with this material. 
I, as you explained it to me last time we spoke, the pandemic interrupted the shoot. And I understand that you and Jennifer came together and started reworking the material. Can you just walk me through what that was like when you were interrupted and what was missing and how were those, what were those meetings like? Yeah. You know, this movie was fraught with a lot of things. (laughs) One being it took two years, it took two years to finally come to the final product. Um, which is kind of exciting to me when projects do that, when you're able to let them stew a little bit, when you're not trying to really rush. There were a lot of changes that were happening. I think the first time that we started filming this in New Orleans, uh, there was a tropical storm that was on its way there. I had never heard the word evacuation more in my life. Also to hear the word evacuation in a place like New Orleans um, and knowing what the history of that is, knowing what that means to that particular atmosphere and environment, it really it, 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 it activated us in a completely different way, especially since our two characters are natives of New Orleans, you know, born and raised there. Uh, so, you know, we filmed what we did the first time. And then I think we always had the impetus to come back to revisit it because we felt after what we had filmed, and especially after Jennifer and I connecting on the first shoot, we were like, there's something else, you know, there's something else. There were a lot of things that were filmed that weren't used. They were truly special in their own right. There were scenes that involved flashbacks of her in Afghanistan and you actually getting to see how she got her injury uh, and the different relationships that she had over there, which were very important um, at the time to moving the story along, but something happened where we realized that Lindsay, we hadn't really seen any reason to keep Lindsay where she is. Like we never saw this kind of side of what it looks like for her to stay. You know, everything seemed to be bouncing off of her to get her to leave again. Like, you know, regardless her connection with her brother, the connection with her mother, everything about New Orleans reminded her of why she should leave. And we, realize that there is something else to staying. Um, Being a person who constantly, whenever I deal with a lot of uh, conflict in life, I get out. Like I'm a runaway. (laughs) Like I'm like deuces. I don't have time for this, you know? And I thought that that was the hardest thing, but in actuality, what I discovered in the discovery of this film is that staying is actually the scariest part. Staying actually takes a lot of bravery. Staying takes a lot um, to do. And so 2020 happened and talk about a time when we all had to stay, you know what I mean? Like 2020 (laughs) reminded us how much we had to stay put, right? All the language was very much isolate, you know, lockdown, shelter in place. It was all this very, you know, um, and so I, we discovered in 2020 because we were all staying very much in touch, making sure that everyone was okay, making sure that people had their wits about them in whatever way that was. And I found that me, Jen, and Lila were having lots of conversations. And then, you know, there was something that we felt was like we couldn't shake. We couldn't shake the movie. We just couldn't shake it. Like there was just something. And so I find out at some point that Jen has been staying and sheltering over the hill for me. (laughs) Like she's literally on the other side of the hill. And we were like, screw it. Let's get together. I know that there's protocols. Let's meet outside. Let's stay six feet apart, but we have to break this thing open. And we're just sitting out in her garden, you know, and we're just really talking about the parts um, that we felt we needed to see 
and the parts that we felt we needed to champion for and the parts that we thought would actually aid in the healing for the two of these characters. And then we go back. And the crazy part about going back is that it's post-pandemic in whatever way that is. And the way we left New Orleans um, had shifted and the way we were going to New Orleans had shifted. We were all different. Everyone was different. And not only that, everyone at this point that is in front of your face is a survivor. No, no, there's no way you can, there's no other way you can put it. And that weight, it sunk into us a little deeper when we went back to these characters, like, because we were like, oh, right, they're survivors. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, we, that, I think that that part had kind of escaped me the first time that Lindsay and James are survivors. Like, that is what it is. And um, that really helped add this element of, um, a connection to grow. Uh, it, it helped us really understand how to get to the place of helping them lay these burdens down. Because in essence, that's what I really wanted was for them, especially for James, to not so much circumvent his grief, not to go around it, not to go over it or under it, but to go through it. And the thing is, is like when it comes to grief and loss, I compare it to James's condition. So James is an amputee, correct? So he is missing a limb. And there's this, this syndrome called phantom limb syndrome that most amputees deal with, which is basically that you and your body still believe that that appendage is still there. You still feel certain, you know, tingles, you still feel itches, you still feel that. And you, that's something that goes on for as long as it goes on. You know, there's no, there's the body and the brain don't know when to shut that off. It goes on as long as it goes on. And that reminded me a lot of grief. It reminded me a lot of loss, like how you can have this thing that's always been there, this person, this representation of something, of love and a relationship of care. And then all of a sudden it's gone and you still don't really know your brain and body haven't really navigated what that is. You, it, you know, you still pick up the phone and call these people. You still keep their room the same way. There are certain pieces of them that you still cherish because you think they'll probably come and collect them one day. And um, that was really important to try to break into this time around when we went back because we realized that it wasn't that important for you to see how we got to where we were. Um, because I think that when people go through trauma, there is a text, there's a scribe that happens when you have to retell your story over and over again of how you got to where you were, how you lost this limb, who, you know, and you get tired of that trope after a while. You get tired of like having to be your narrative of trauma. And then what happens when somebody sees beyond that and really gets to cut through and see you? get to really get to the core of who you are. And that's what we realized was missing for James and Lindsay was like, oh, wait a minute. They actually found somebody else uh, in this world that has kept them kind of separate, you know, and they can drop everything and actually get to the core of who they were and who they want to be. And um, yeah, and, and it, that was, it, it took 2020, I think, uh, for us to, to, to figure that out. Um, because we were all changed. Can, uh, we were all. You can, you can feel that. You can feel that in the film. The churning nature of the, the the. It's almost like you you feel the impact of the pandemic in a way, and I think we come to it as as audiences having gone through this. So maybe a lot of the um, background is in a way done. Like we're closer maybe to the ideas mm -hmm. of this film for having gone through this. I wonder if that's. Right. I mean, 
without sounding glib, I, I would put that to you. Do you think that have, seeing this through the prism of the pandemic makes us more receptive to these ideas in the film? Absolutely. Absolutely. I haven't gone back and looked at it myself. There were a lot of things that I just did not recognize the first time. Like, I didn't realize how when you meet James, right, for all intents and purposes, he's an ordinary dude. You know, like you can't see, you know, his disability. You don't know anything about him. You just know that he's a man who works at this auto body shop and somebody comes up and needs his assistance, right? Which I find when it comes to people dealing with disabilities, right? When 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 they're giving the given the language of now being considered disabled, so many things have to shift uh, against their will most times. Um, you know, you you've spent your life one way, and I'm talking about people who become disabled, not so much who are born into that, but like you know when you. Uh, suffer um, some kind of traumatic loss or injury, and then you're labeled as disabled, you then have to figure out how to navigate life again. You have to figure out how to, I, I guess, in a way, get to a place of making your disability ordinary, you know, of, of making it regular uh, in, in its own way. And so I found watching it the second time, I was like, he suffered the hugest loss of his life in an automobile accident, and yet he spends his life fixing other people's cars. You know, like it's like the, so. So not only do you wake up every day, because there's a lot that goes into an amputation. Okay, like to to normalize it, there's a lot that goes into it. You, you know, for him, he has a below the knee amputation, not an above the knee amputation, which then means that there's flexion. Okay, cool. But then you also have to put a sleeve on. You have to, there's a click that happens. So you know that your leg is in place. You have to figure out how to dress it. You know, you have to figure out a lot of things. And, and then not only is he doing that, but then he's going to an auto body shop to, to, to fix everybody else's cars. And <laughs> like, and I was like, oh, so he's reminding himself every day. Every single day, not only is he having a reminder of his loss by the loss of his actual physical leg, but he is going to be of service to other people who need help fixing their cars. Like, like, and not only that, he still wants to drive around, you know, he's still, so there, uh, there's a part of me that feels like there's a bravery to him, but also there's a part of me that's like, is he paying penance? Like, is there a part of him that feels like he deserves this? Is there a part of him that feels like, this is as good as it's going to get for him. Like, you know, like, why would you stay in a place that is the scene of so many of your losses? And so for me, as Brian watching, watching again, it made me really, really, um, it didn't make me pity him. It didn't make me judge him. It just made me want to put my arms around him. You know, it made me want to like, really just like, I don't know. It, it, there, there was something to be said that I just didn't realize of, of how commonplace we can make our loss sometimes, how commonplace we can make our trauma and how we don't want to like burden anybody else with it. We don't really feel like anybody sees it, you know, for them. And, and I think that that's the truth about when Lindsay comes along because he's seen for the first time, you know, he's truly seen for the first time. And 
there's something that's so it, also seeing it this second time. I was like, this is the most teenage juvenile friendship connection I've ever seen. <laughs> you know, I was like, here you have these two people who have been marred by these different losses and tragedies, but yet when they get together, they're like sitting in a park. They're sharing a blunt together. They're having a burger. They're riding in the car, joking about, you know, getting a row machine. They're they're having snowballs together. And you want that. You know, I wanted that for them. I was like, oh, if we could just get back to those simplicities of connection and friendship like we did when we were teens. Ah, you know, especially after coming out of such um, a place like 2020 that told us if you connect with anybody else, you are putting them in danger. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like you are putting them in danger. Um, but there was something yeah. quite beautiful in the discovery of this kind of this adolescent kind of um, peak in them. You see this spark happening with both of them where they're not their disabilities, they're not their losses. But also you see that thing that happens in reality where it's like, well, don't forget, though. Don't forget that this is still going on for you. Don't forget that you still carry this. Don't forget there will always be those moments that, that happen in that movie for them where they get right to this place of of discovering that they don't have to be their losses and they don't have to be the things they carry. And then something comes in and that's life, you know, like that is life. That's, that is truly how navigating grief, navigating grief feels like it, it, it's like that. Cause you'll get those reminders every time that something's missing, but the hope yeah. of something else on the other side is what's important. Yeah. You positioned that. I mean, it's so well played by you guys in the sense that, it, I think, like you say, he's staying close to cars and he's fixing cars maybe because he wants to still feel it. He wants to be open. He doesn't want to move on from it in some ways. But the film is right at the point when hopefully Lindsay and, and Jane both will move on. Like it's, it's poised right. right at the point when they can hopefully become people that can exist beyond their damage. And so it, right. it makes the film feel different in terms of where it's positioned normally on the scale of grief. Grief is a grief is something that I feel, you know, like people talk about processing grief. Like you have to, like it's mm -hmm. an assignment. You have to push it aside and then move on yeah. to the next thing. There's even I get stages this. for it. There's even stages. Yeah. yeah. And you could, you could chat, track your progress like you're using a Google map or something. But the fact is that maybe grief wants to hang around. Maybe it's something that sticks around. Is this Was that different for you, this movie, in the sense of how it was going to address grief? And maybe it's something that you embrace? You know, that's a good question. I think I don't think it was so much about getting to the ending of something, I realize. And I think about our ending in our film, which we had several. The ending was the part that we were like, what, how do we, you know, like what, what, how, you know, like, what do we want? What do we, and, and did you write the what, ending with, with Denver? Did you? We did. We did sit down and really sit there. Yeah. I, we, the, the great part about the collaboration of this movie is that we, we did confer, we did sit down, we did rip pages. We did sit and we, you know, we really wanted to figure it out. Um, because of what was happening between Jennifer and I, you know, like our connection was really it, it, like, and it, it I, I'm so lucky because I was like, this will probably never happen again. <laughs> like on another <laughs> film, it will probably, probably never happen again. 
But that's the great thing about doing something independent like that is that it, it, it is it, you carry it. It is all on, you know, you, your feel, your feelings, your emotions are you can put them right in the room and talk about it. Um, and so but what we realized is that instead of trying so hard to get to an ending, we needed to focus on the beginning of stuff. We need to focus on the beginning of because that's the thing about grief is that. At first, you're always trying to figure out when will this pain go away? You know, when will when will when will this end? When when is it when when is the finality of this feeling going to be here? And instead, you have to shift and think about how you're going to begin in grief, how you're going to start something, how you're actually beginnings are actually harder um than endings um because endings are finite we know that everything ends at some point everything has an ending but beginnings are actually the moments where you feel that kind of like that vibration i talk about when you when you feel that that tuning fork ping a little bit when you the possibilities of something come from beginnings and possibilities are scary like possibilities mm-hmm mean something right like possibilities mean stuff <laughs> so yeah. um it, there's an emergence that happens out of a beginning there there there's there's a, a kind of way that you can lay things down that you you can pick, pick and choose what you want to take with you on the journey and so what we love the most about the ending is that there was a beginning of something we left it there so you don't know you know but we saw two people coming back in a place of being like, there's a possibility here. There's a poss- there's an absolute possibility of something that could happen. And I think that that's what they both needed. I think they both for so long had literally looked at life um, through the lenses of things being taken and ending. Um, <clears throat> even that scene, the beautiful, most uh, it's a poignant scene where Lindsay goes to visit her brother in prison and all these other parts, like who is also considered disabled, he's deaf. And not only that, he's in jail. So like these, these things, you know, that, that divide us, these things that kind of feel like they put us in a box um, where actually he felt that him being in prison gave him more possibility to begin again. You know, that kind of, you know, um, the beginnings of having her come to visit my home. The title of the film also speaks to exactly what you're talking about. This idea of starting mm-hmm. from somewhere, going somewhere, not necessarily the end yeah. of it. Right. Because the causeway in and of itself is like 29 miles of road over an open body of water, right? It's just a stretch of road that begins in one place and ends in another place. And it's going two directions and there's no exits. <laughs> like <laughs> once you start, you're on it. Like once you start on the causeway, you're on the causeway. That's just how it goes. And Another part that kind of hit me was like, oh, that's where James had his accident. Okay. So not only is this a place with no exits, you are going in one direction, coming from someplace and going someplace, but James's accident stopped that for a number of people. James's accident was the ending of somebody on that causeway. Uh, There had to be a rescue for James. Everyone knew what happened on that causeway. Uh, And there's nothing more terrifying, right? I, I, I feel than the suspension of being in between two places, right? Like you don't know if you're there yet and you don't know how far you've come from where you left. But that in essence, I believe is grief. (laughs) Like that's the journey of grief. Um, 
because, you know, once you start the journey in it, man, like that's it, like you're in it. And, um, but the whole thing isn't so much about the destination. It is really truly about the journey of it because it's about your way through. It's not so much about how it looks on the ending of it, but it's truly about you just beginning. And I think that that's what we wanted to really capture in this movie for these characters is that they're choosing to begin something. Yeah. It's somewhat unrelated, but I, I know that a lot of people saw and enjoyed your performance in Bullet Train this year. And, you know, they're watching you on, on TV and they're seeing you in all sorts of different forums. Um, an assassin, um, a mechanic, all sorts of different types of characters. Is there a through line here for you in terms of how you choose your roles? Do you have a philosophy to it? I don't. I, I've, I've been asked this several times and I've never thought about it. I truly, honestly, and I know it's going to sound like I am burning sage in the middle of the bush in the desert. I'm going to sound like a hippie. Uh, no diss to hippies. Uh, but I let them tell me. Honestly, like I let these characters tell me, I, I let whatever these black men have to say, tell me, inform me of how I choose them. Um, and, and you know, there's a lot of things that come across that I'm like, okay, maybe, you know, there's a lot, I've been told most of my life how to be, how to show myself, how not to be, especially more often than not, how not to be. And I feel like what I've been able to do is find these different characters, find these different souls who are yearning to be seen in a way that they haven't been seen before. Um, and they also help me in a way, show me in a way that I've never been seen before. And that's exciting. <laughs> like the possibility of being more and doing and showing more than what people want to put on you is the most exciting part of my job. Um, I don't care how many lines, I don't care how many scenes, I don't care if he's in the background for a number of hours, you will feel him, you will see him, you it will relate to him in some way. And I think that that's the only process that I have held on to now is like how, how, how badly and how much and how worthy are these men of being seen and they're all worthy of being seen, but it's like what parts of myself at the same time am I willing to give them? And so they speak to me, man. Like they really speak to me and they let me know. And I'm like, you know, I'm here, <laughs> you know, I'm here in any way that I can be. So there's no rhyme or reason just yet. But what I do love is the amazing range that they come in, the, the amazing different ranges they come in of heartbreak and love and even sociopathy, <laughs> if you think about bullet train. Um, like, <laughs> uh, but I'll, also I all. The main thing that I want, honestly, and I say this quite often, is that all I want people to do when they see me in something or they see a character I play is that they turn off their television or they go to their car and just for one second, just ask, hmm, you know, I wonder if he's okay. Huh? Like, ah, oh, gee, I wonder if he's, I wonder if he's good, you know, that being me or the character. But I want you to take a piece that cares. I want there to be something where you're just like, oh man, like I feel like, I feel like I want to make sure he's good. And that's 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 the only testimony I want to leave. Brian Tyree Henry, thank you for joining EW's The Awardist. <laughs> it was a pleasure, man. Anytime. 
Well, look, I am a big fan of Brian Tyree Henry. Anyone who uh, has seen him on Atlanta, I think, also certainly knows his uh, his great talents. And in fact, he is uh, one of EW's 10 Entertainers of the Year. Uh, Dave, you mentioned uh, Brad Pitt earlier. Uh, Brad did that tribute because they co-starred uh, together this year in uh, Bullet Train. Um, Clarissa, I mean, tell folks a bit about what, what Brad thinks of well, Brian. Brad adores him. Yeah. It, it was just so obvious. Um, he he just couldn't stop talking about him, just what sort of presence he has on set. And, um, you know, they worked together on Bullet Train, and he talked about how Brian would just sort of improvise certain of his certain lines of his. And he was so good at it that by the end, he was doing that for everybody. He was giving other people lines, like their, you know, ways to say their line that would be amazing. And, um, you know, Brad was just in awe. And um, it, it was nice to see that admiration. I mean, I think he said he would have nominated Brian, you know, in 2018 for Entertainers of the Year. Yeah. Um, so it, it, he felt it was long overdue, but it was really nice. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with him. Um, Brian's a great talent and uh, I think is going to have a, a really long and, and uh, fruitful career. Um, so can't wait for, uh, you know, more, uh, can't wait to see what he has coming up next. Um, all right. Well, that is, uh, that's it for this episode of the award is Clarissa, Dave, thank you both so much. Sure. Thanks for having us. Yeah, of course. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening. If you liked what you heard, follow, rate the podcast, and leave us an award-winning review on Apple Podcasts. And to keep the conversation with us going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials. We're at EW on Twitter and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag me at Jared Hall. We are taking next week off, but we will be back on January 2nd with a brand new episode. Until then, happy holidays. This episode of The Awardist Podcast is hosted by Jared Hall, produced by Chanel Johnson and Sammy Junio, edited by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening. Listener.